Hey, Grant, can you count us in? All right, we're going live in five, four, three. Hello, dear listeners, or shall we call you dissidents? We are popping in to give you a little bonus content while we are hard at work on the next Deep Dive episode. By now, you all know how much we love the Supreme Court and dissents. And the Super Bowl meets Christmas morning is coming up for SCOTUS super fans. Do you know what that is? End, End of, of term, term decisions! decisions. <laughs> so we'll drop some bonus episodes from time to time to talk about what's going on in the world of SCOTUS Descents. I'm Anastasia Bowden. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. This week on DIST, it's a bonus episode. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. All right. So the big word on the SCOTUS street right now is all about the shadow docket, the shadow docket strikes again, Elizabeth. We need scary music behind that term, shadow docket. And that, of course, is when the Supreme Court sort of makes law or makes decisions without going through the full oral argument, hearing process, that sort of thing. It just issues orders, and they call it the shadow docket. Because um, sometimes they got to rule quickly. I get it. I get it, too. I mean, it's COVID. People's rights are at stakes here. Let's Let's get on with it. At stakes, I think I just mm. said. <laughs> I must be hungry. <laughs> but anyway, on Friday, late Friday night, SCOTUS issued a decision in Tandon versus Newsom. This is... Hit this, us with a summary. Oh, okay. Well, the summary is this is a... This, this was a case challenging California's limit on in-home gatherings where people could not gather in groups of more than three combined households in any one home and that just seems silly under any circumstances to me because that's pretty hard to police i mean think of what that encourages i don't want my neighbors creeping over the fence being like is that more than three households i mean i didn't even know that i live in california i didn't even know that was a thing but anyway there well, thanks scotus now you do Right, it's true, and now I can uh, pipe up about it. But um, a group of plaintiffs had sued because they were seeking a religious exemption, basically, for at-home Bible studies. And they contended that because in California you could combine in groups of more than three households for things like salons, uh, you know, going shopping, uh, personal care services, going to the uh, barbershop or, or nail place, Oh, I like this. Private suites at sporting events and exactly. concerts. Movie theaters. So all of these these places, they said, get better treatment than their at-home Bible studies. And the majority agrees. 5-4 decision. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett in the majority. And on the other side of it, Chief Justice Roberts, joined by Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, with Kagan writing the dissent, which was on fire. Although... Chief Justice Roberts didn't join the dissent. He just said he would have denied the application. So we don't really know what he's thinking. We just know he didn't agree. Yeah. We don't know why. And that's, see, and that is 
the problem with the shadow docket, Elizabeth. That's what they say is there's no transparency. So they say. So they say. Anyway, what do you think about that Kagan dissent? Since this is a show about dissents after all. I mean, it was on fire if you ask me. She says that the relevant comparison, I ask you what you think, but then I just start talking. But I'm just gonna say one thing, which is that she said that the relevant comparison when you're looking for religious discrimination is not between religious at-home gatherings and all those other public activities that are allowed, but it's what's allowed at home. And the law treated activities at home neutrally. It did not discriminate against religious activities. It didn't allow any at-home activities with groups of three or more households. And she says that the majority was comparing apples to watermelons. Apples to watermelons. She also accused the majority of saying that California has to ignore the science, ignore its experts that have come to you know their scientific conclusions. And I have to say respectfully, Justice Kagan, if this were a year ago, I might agree with you. But this case was decided against the backdrop of several smackdowns by SCOTUS of California uh, throughout throughout the last year. And, you know, we've seen over the course of the past year with these religious exercise cases during COVID coming up to the Supreme Court, it seems like the tide is turning and the court was more willing to allow states to be more restrictive earlier on. But now that we're a year plus in, they are not having it. Yeah, well, and it makes sense. I mean, you think about what California was saying in this case, and it was saying, well, homes are different because people are less likely to distance or to wear masks and there's poor ventilation they spend more time at home compared to other places i mean i don't know at a movie theater you spend a good amount of time this is all just speculation it really seems post hoc doesn't add up to me yeah i mean if you were going to see a scorsese film you'd easily spend three and a half hours exactly it's probably longer than the bible study put that in the majority opinion <laughs> <laughs> I also like that the majority pointed out that even though I think California had changed the restrictions by the point that the the court issued its order, they said that doesn't moot this because these officials have a track record of moving the goalposts. And so they were concerned about the precedent. And since we're all about dissents, I just want to flag for people that at the Ninth Circuit, which was where the case came from, uh, Judge Patrick Bumate had a dissent, and it was a partial dissent, partial concurrence, and it was really great. So Read check it. it out. Read it, people. Yeah, I guess my last comment is, I mean, I, whatever you have to say about the opinion, I just cannot get over it. I can't get over it. I'm an economic liberty attorney at heart. I can't get over the fact that if you were to bring a case based on that beautiful fundamental right to uh, run a business or earn a living as many people have before, it just would have been shut down. And that disparity of treatment, I just think it's cruel and unfair. I mean, economic liberty is a constitutional right too. And it's not that it has to be treated. It, I mean, I won't even take an, a stance here on whether it has to be treated equally to religious liberty. But can you just give us some respect out here? I mean... <laughs> Economic liberty you can't get is not no nothing. respect. <laughs> I can't get no respect. I mean, so little respect for economic liberty, which uh, I don't know why people think that's not important nowadays. It's it's central to people's well-being. But anyway, that's all I have to say about that. So one last thing I want to flag for people to check out. Uh, 
there's a piece on SCOTUS blog, and I might butcher the author's name, Jim Oleski. He's a law professor. Anyway, interesting piece. He says the majority in this COVID case basically stole the thunder of the Fulton case, which we have talked about before on this podcast. That's the Philadelphia foster care case asking the court to overrule employment division versus Smith. So that's the famous case that says a, per a person's religious beliefs don't excuse uh, noncompliance with a reasonable, gen generally applicable law. So this professor says you can track it starting with a dissent by Justice Kavanaugh last summer in another church closure case. And then that became a concurrence in the fall. And now it's the majority opinion in the spring. The court has basically adopted the theory that there is a right to a religious exemption from generally applicable laws. So I guess we'll see. Uh, any day now, the Fulton case could come out, but we'll see if Aleski's assessment is right. Yeah, I mean, whatever happens, he might be right about what's going to happen with Fulton, but I don't know that, that that's what's going on here because I think what the majority is careful to say is that there is religious discrimination. I mean, the dissent and others might disagree because it's generally applicable as to in-home gatherings, but the majority goes out of its way to say that it's not generally applicable with regards to other activities. So I don't know, I don't, it, it might be tipping its head or it might be, you know, tipping its hat, pardon me, or, or uh, changing Smith with this shadow docket ruling, shadow docket, shadow docket. We need like an echo effect. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like we're more in the uh, Church of Lukumi Babalua. I probably mispronounced the name, but, you know, the religious discrimination line of cases than, right. than not. Okay. Let's move on Moving to our on. next topic. Court packing. It's a hot topic in the news right now. And Justice Stephen Breyer dissents. So... What is going on? Uh, President Biden announced he's setting up a bipartisan commission to study a variety of court reforms, including the length of service and turnover of justices, the court size, and how it selects its cases and other internal practices. Uh, so first, I just want to say shout out to friend of the pod, GME professor Adam White. He is on the commission. So props to you. Hey, Adam. Other thing. I can imagine some of the justices would not be too happy if this commission comes out with all sorts of suggestions about the court's internal operations. They don't like the other branches telling them how to do their business. Just look at the longstanding resistance to bringing cameras into the courtroom and transparency measures along those lines. So I think it will be, you know, we'll keep an eye on that commission uh, and what they end up doing. Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I find it amusing that uh, some people are giving some arguments where they're saying, no, 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 we're not trying to pack the court to get our preferred political outcome. We just want to speed up efficiency and, and we think that there should be sort of term limits on justices because, you know, right now there's uh, it's life tenure, and obviously the justices can get up there in age and, in fact, you know, pass away while they're on the bench. So they say, well, we need to just keep people, we need to keep it fresh. And it's just, it's hilarious to me because that's actually what FDR was saying too, even though we all know FDR 
just wanted to get judges on the bench when he proposed his court packing plan that agreed with him. But what he actually said was he admitted that part, but he said also there's an efficiency argument and uh, we need younger judges on the bench to sort of, you know, keep the, it would be, it would be more economical if we could have a faster moving judiciary in that way. And we don't want any hardened arteries, which he meant not <laughs> only in terms of, you know, their, their bleeding heart becoming hardened, but also, um, you know, the efficiency of it all. So I'm like, we see through you. We know, we know what happened when FDR did this. We know it's about getting your preferred political outcome. And that was the genesis of this whole discussion. So, yeah. So this week after the, you know, after the commission was announced this week, a group of congressional Democrats have introduced a bill that would expand the court from nine to 13 justices. Now, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said that the Biden commission is the better approach, so don't expect that bill to move too fast. But I would really love to ask the sponsors, you know, because there's nothing magical about the number nine. Um, I'm a conservative, big and small C conservative, so I generally don't like too much change. Uh, but there's nothing magical about the number nine, and we have had a different number of justices on the court at different times, you know, six to start, and then it worked its way up and settled at nine in the late 1800s. But I'd love to hear them say, what's their justification? Is it, you know, in the past when seats were added to the Supreme Court, they usually corresponded with the creation of a new circuit court, the expansion of the country, and more work. Um, so are the members of Congress intending to give the court more work or is it just going to be less work for even more people? Because they're I mean, their their caseload has gone way down in the last 50 to 60 years. Um, they only hear about 70 cases, you know, where they hear full briefing and argument. And then, of course, there's the shadow dog shadow dog. Um, is it just you know, the political angle, is it just tit for tat because the last president uh, appointed three justices? Because that seems like we'd be opening a can of worms. We're going to end up with a 300 person Supreme Court. Um, or is it just that they don't like the outcomes that the current court is reaching? Uh, if that's the case, what kind of outcomes do they want? Are they going to ask new, you know, the new proposed justices to prejudge cases and say exactly how they're going to rule in cases in the future. That's a con concern that um, that I have. And, you know, I think that's the obviously the opposite of what we should want from impartial justices on the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's not hard to see why this is a bad idea, especially I mean, I'm obsessed with this FDR history because I just find it really interesting. And that it was his own party that shut him down. I love that angle of it. That's true. Um, and another thing that I think is interesting is that we all hear about the switch in time that saved nine, right? We all hear that. It's just what you learn in law school or if you study history of this era, that uh, Justice Roberts switched his vote in the uh, West Coast Parish Hotel case to, um, to side with the progressives to stave off the court packing plan, that it was a totally politically motivated decision um, to stave off court packing. And it turns out that years later, when the justices 
papers were released, we found out that no, in fact, he had made that decision before court packing was even introduced. And so we know that that's all a myth. And the reason that perspective of his vote came to be was because court packing was in the ether. And so people just started seeing decisions um, through the lens of politicization, 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 politics political. They assumed it was political. And we now know that's not true. And so it just, it immediately tarnishes um, the way we, v- we view the court. And I think that's really quite a shame. So last thing on this topic, because I promised there was a dissent here, Justice Breyer offered some thoughts on the subject recently. Listeners probably know that at 82 years old, Breyer is the oldest justice as well as the oldest one appointed by a Democrat, making him the target of a pressure campaign to get him to retire. So speaking at Harvard Law School recently, he warned that we should think long and hard about any uh, the consequences of changing the court structure. So here's a little bit of what he said, just a taste. It's wrong to think of the court as another political institution, and it is doubly wrong to think of its members as junior league politicians. I love that phrase. Structural alteration motivated by the perception of political influence can only feed that perception, further eroding that trust. There are no shortcuts to it. And I tend to agree with Justice Breyer that anything that's trotted out as sort of a silver bullet solution is not going to fix any perceived erosion of the public trust in the court. Although I would point out the court tends to have a higher approval rating than the other branches of government. You know who else was against court packing? Who? RBG. That's right. And she was also against being pressured to leave the court before she was ready it's true so so there okay well listeners dissidents dissenters we're workshopping a name for our fans assuming your fans <laughs> let us know what you think send us comments and tweet at us what you think about all of this so we're gonna wrap things up uh, we'll end with a little game we like to call name that dissent <laughs> Okay, I'm going to read a line from a dissent, and Anastasia is going to name that dissent. Oh, my God, the pressure. My stomach just dropped, seriously. <laughs> I hope you go easy on me for, for I, the first game. I think you'll, yeah. Uh, it's a mix. Okay, are you ready? Uh-oh, I'm ready. First, first one. A great dissenter once wrote, Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Plessy versus Ferguson. And who was the dissenter? The greatest dissenter, say many. The first justice, John Marshall Harlan. That is correct. I like that you started me off with something to like get my confidence up. That was nice. Very strategic. 1896 ruling upholding state-imposed racial segregation. And there are many memorable lines from that dissent. Okay, off to a great start. Next. This dissent explained the founders, quote, conferred against the government the right to be let alone, the most comprehensive of rights and the right most favored by civilized men. The dissent mm-hmm. said that? The right to be let alone. I mean. I can give you a hint. Do it. I will uh, use my The subject matter is related to. Searches? Our Carpenter episode. I knew it. I, I said that. <laughs> 
let it be known. Roll the tape. I said it before you gave me the hint. Uh, okay. A descent. Which one would it be? How about this? It was in the 1920s. Hmm. <laughs> Still don't know. <laughs> okay. It's uh, Justice Louis Brandeis in Olmstead versus United States, 1928 case, finding wiretapping of bootleggers did not violate the Fourth Amendment. Mm. Of course, there would be a sea change in the law a few decades later. Tune in to our next episode to hear more. Yes. Third, the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's <gasps> social statics. Boo, hiss, worse descent. <laughs> In history, Oliver Wendell Holmes in the Lochner decision. Boo! Boo! Of course, listeners, go back and listen to our first episode. If you do not know about Lochner, it's the Bake Shop Hours case. You thought he was so pithy using that alliteration. (laughs) It's hard to say that. Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. Okay. Fourth and final. This does not have any tie-in with um, a current episode but it's a good one if the court does not temper its doctrinaire logic with a little practical wisdom it will convert the constitutional bill of rights into a suicide pact oh oh i should know this the constitution is not a suicide pact here's a hint the seat that this justice occupied has been filled by many a great dissenter I don't know if that's helpful if you know the line, the lines of justices. <laughs> I don't know what that is. But I do know the Constitution is not a suicide pact. What is that? I don't know. Give it to me, Elizabeth. It's Justice Robert Jackson, mm. the seat that Scalia would go on to fill. Mm. You know, not right after him, but eventually. Okay. Uh, Terminello. I don't know if I said that right. Terminello whatever it is, versus Chicago 1949 case, finding unconstitutional a law banning speech that creates a public disturbance. I think you did a good job. Well, thanks. For this first time with name that dissent. If Richard Epstein Uh, was here, he would have known everyone and he would have rattled off the case citation with it and the year. But hey, he said green margarine and you knew it was pink. I did know that. I know my pink margarine. <laughs> I know things <laughs> course, that are pink. Of course it's pink. Um, and thanks to uh, our intern, Natalie DeCesar, for her research assistance on Name That Descent. <laughs> i throw it back to you, Anastasia. Oh, my concluding thoughts are that the Supreme Court is about to heat on up here. So stay tuned, everyone, because we're about to get the most vigorous descents of the term, which most often come at the end of the term. So... We can't wait. Yes. Thanks for listening to Dist. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback. So send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating. Five stars only. And tell your friends to check out Dist. <laughs>